on the list and say each out loud. Which ones fit your personality? Which ones seem right for you? Try each on like a suit of clothes to see which feel comfortable. Choose a few favorites and practice saying them aloud until they become a natural staple of your vocabulary. The next time you want to compliment someone, say, on being smart, you'll be purring, Oh, that's so clever of you. My, how resourceful. That was ingenious. Or maybe, how astute of you. And now, for men only. Gentlemen, we women spend a lot of time in front of the mirror, as if you didn't know. When I was in college, it used to take me a full fifteen minutes to fix myself up for a date. Every year since, I've had to add a few minutes. I'm now up to an hour and a half gussying myself up for an evening out. Gentlemen, when your wife comes down the staircase all dolled up for a night out, or you pick a lady up for dinner, what do you say? If you make no comment except, Well, are you ready to go? How do you think that makes the lady feel? My friend Gary is a nice gentleman, and he occasionally takes me to dinner. I met him about twelve years ago, and I'll never forget the first time he arrived on my doorstep for our date. He said, Leal, you look great. I adored his reaction. I saw Gary a month or so later. On my doorstep again, Leal, you look great. The precise same words as the first time, but I still appreciated it. It's been twelve long years now that this gentleman and I have been friends. I see him about once every two months, and every darn time it's the same old comment. Leal, you look great. I think I'll show up one evening in a flannel nightshirt and a mud pack on my face. I swear, Gary will say, Leal, you look great. During my seminars, to help men avoid Gary's mistake, I ask every male to think of a synonym for pretty or great. Then I bring up one woman and several men. I ask each to pretend he is her husband. She has just come down the stairs ready to go out to dinner. I ask each to take her hand and deliver his compliment. Darla, one says, you look elegant. Ooh, every woman in the room sighs. Darla, says another, taking her hand, you look stunning. Ooh, every woman in the room swoons. Darla, says the third, putting her hand between his, you look ravishing. Ooh. By now, every woman in the room has gone limp. Pay attention, men. Words work on us women. More unisex suggestions. Suppose you've been at a party and it was wonderful. Don't tell the hosts it was wonderful. Everybody says that. Tell them it was a splendid party, a superb party, an extraordinary party. Hug the hosts and tell them you had a magnificent time, a remarkable time, a glorious time. The first few times you say a word like glorious, it may not roll comfortably off your tongue. Yet you have no trouble with the word wonderful. Hmm. Glorious doesn't have any more syllables than wonderful. Neither does it have any more difficult sounds to pronounce. Vocabulary is all a matter of familiarity. 
use your new favorite words a few times and, just like breaking in a new pair of shoes, you'll be very comfortable wearing your glorious new words. Technique number 26. Your personal thesaurus. Look up some common words you use every day in a thesaurus. Then, like slipping your feet into a new pair of shoes, slip your tongue into a few new words to see how they fit. If you like them, start making permanent replacements. Remember, only 50 words makes the difference between a rich, creative vocabulary and an average middle-of-the-road one. Substitute a word a day for two months, and you'll be in the verbally elite. 27. How to not sound anxious. Let them discover your similarity. Tigers prowl with tigers, lions lurk with lions, and little alley cats scramble around with other little alley cats. Similarity breeds attraction. But in the human jungle, big cats know a secret. When you delay revealing your similarity or let them discover it, it has much more punch. Above all, you don't want to sound anxious to have rapport. Whenever someone mentions a common interest or experience, instead of jumping in with a breathless, Hey, me too, I do that too, or I know all about that, let your conversation partner enjoy talking about it. Let her go on about the country club before you tell her you're a member too. Let him go on analyzing the golf swing of Arnold Palmer before you start casually comparing the swings of golf greats Greg, Jack, Tiger, and Arnie. Let her tell you how many tennis games she's won before you just happen to mention your USTA ranking. Several years ago, I was telling a new acquaintance how much I love to ski. He listened with interest as I indulged in a detailed travelogue of places I had skied. I raved about the various resorts. I analyzed the various conditions. I discussed artificial versus natural snow. It wasn't until near the end of my monologue that I finally had the sense to ask my new acquaintance if he skied. He replied, Yes, I keep a little apartment in Aspen. Cool. If he had jumped in and told me about his ski pad right after I first told him how much I liked skiing, I'd have been impressed. Mildly. However, waiting until the end of our conversation, and then revealing he was such an avid skier that he kept an Aspen ski pad, made it unforgettable. Here's the technique I call, Kill the Quick Me Too. Whenever people mention an activity or interest you share, let them enjoy discussing their passion. Then, when the time is right, casually mention you share their interest. Oh, I must have been boring you. I waited weeks for the opportunity to try it out. Finally, the moment presented itself at a convention. A new contact began telling me about her recent trip to Washington, D.C. She had no idea that Washington was where I grew up. She told me all about the Capitol, the Washington Monument, the Kennedy Center, and how she and her husband went bicycling in Rock Creek Park. Momentarily, I forgot I was keeping my mouth shut to practice my new technique— I was genuinely enjoying hearing about these familiar sights from a visitor's perspective. I asked her where she stayed, where she dined, and if she had a chance to get into any of the beautiful Maryland or Virginia suburbs. At one point, obviously pleased by my interest in her trip, she said, 
You sound like you know a lot about Washington. Yes, I replied. It's my hometown, but I haven't been back there in ages. Your hometown? she squealed. My goodness, why didn't you tell me? I must have been boring you. Oh, not at all, I replied honestly. I was enjoying hearing about your trip so much I was afraid you'd stop if I told you. Her big smile and barely audible, oh gosh, let me know I had won a new friend. When someone starts telling you about an activity he has done, a trip she has made, a club he belongs to, an interest she has, anything that you share, bite your tongue. Let the teller relish his or her own monologue. Relax and enjoy it, too, secretly knowing how much pleasure your conversation partner will have when you reveal you share the same experience. Then, when the moment is ripe, casually disclose your similarity. And be sure to mention how much you enjoyed hearing about his or her shared interest. Technique number 27. Kill the quick Me Too. Whenever you have something in common with someone, the longer you wait to reveal it, the more moved and impressed he or she will be. You emerge as a confident big cat, not a lonely little stray hungry for quick connection with a stranger. P.S. Don't wait too long to reveal your shared interest, or it will seem like you're being tricky. 28. How to be a you-firsty to gain their respect and affection. Sex. Now that I have your attention, two-bit comics have been using that gag from the days when two bits bought a four-square meal. However, big winners know there's a three-letter word more potent than sex to get people's attention. That word is you. Why is you such a powerful word? Because when we were infants, we thought we were the center of the universe. Nothing mattered but me, myself, and I. The rest of the shadowy forms stirring about us, which we later learned were other people, existed solely for what they could do for us. Self-centered little tykes that we were, our tiny brains translated every action, every word into, how does that affect me? Big winners know we haven't changed a bit. Adults camouflage their self-centeredness under a mask of civilization and politeness. Yet the human brain still immediately, instinctively, and unfailingly translates everything into terms of, how does that affect me? For example, suppose, gentlemen, you want to ask a colleague, Jill, if she would like to join you for dinner. So you say to her, there's a really good new Indian restaurant in town. Will you join me there for dinner tonight? Before answering, Jill is thinking to herself, by good, does he mean the food or the atmosphere or both? Her reverie continues, Indian cuisine, I'm not sure. He says it's good. However, will I like it? While thinking, Jill hesitates. You probably take her hesitation personally, and the joy of the exchange diminishes. Suppose instead you had said to her, Jill, you will really love this new Indian restaurant. Will you join me there this evening for dinner? Phrasing it that way, you've already subliminally answered Jill's questions, and she's more apt to give you a quick yes. The pleasure-pain principle is a guiding force in life. 
Psychologists tell us everyone automatically gravitates toward that which is pleasurable and pulls away from that which is painful. For many people, thinking is painful. So big winners, when they wish to control, inspire, be loved by, sell to people, or get them to go to dinner, do the thinking for them. They translate everything into the other person's terms by starting as many sentences as they can with that powerful little three-letter word, you. Thus, I call the technique communication. Communicate when you want a favor. Putting you first gets a much better response, especially when you're asking a favor, because it pushes the asker's pride button. Suppose you want to take a long weekend. You decide to ask your boss if you can take Friday off. Which request do you think he or she is going to react to more positively? Can I take Friday off, boss? Or this one? Boss, can you do without me Friday? In the first case, boss has to translate your can I take Friday off into can I do without this employee Friday? That's an extra thought process. And you know how some bosses hate to think. However, in the second case, boss, can you do without me Friday? You did boss's thinking for her. Your new wording made managing without you a matter of pride for boss. Of course, she said to herself. I can manage without your help Friday. Communicate your compliments. Communication also enriches your social conversation. Gentlemen, say a lady likes your suit. Which woman gives you warmer feelings? The woman who says, I like your suit. Or the one who says, you look great in that suit. Big players who make business presentations use communication to excellent advantage. Suppose you're giving a talk and a participant asks a question. He likes to hear you say, that's a good question. However, consider how much better he feels when you tell him, you've asked a good question. Salespeople don't just tell your prospects. It's important that convince them by informing them. You'll see the importance of. When negotiating, instead of the result will be, let them know you'll see the result when you. Starting sentences with you even works when talking to strangers on the street. Once, driving around San Francisco hopelessly lost, I asked people walking along the sidewalk how to get to the Golden Gate Bridge. I stopped a couple trudging up a hill. Excuse me, I called out the window. I can't find the Golden Gate Bridge. The pair looked at each other and shrugged with that how stupid can these tourists get look on their faces. That direction, the husband mumbled, pointing straight ahead. Still lost, I called out to the next couple I encountered. Excuse me, where's the Golden Gate Bridge? Without smiling, they pointed in the opposite direction. Then I decided to try communication. When I came upon the next strolling couple, I called out the window. Excuse me, could you tell me where the Golden Gate Bridge is? Of course, they said, answering my question literally. You see, by phrasing the question that way, it was a subtle challenge. I was asking, in essence, are you able to give me directions? This hits them in the pride button. They walked over to my car and gave me explicit instructions. Hey, I thought. This you stuff really works. 
to test my hypothesis, I tried it a few more times. I kept asking passers-by my three forms of the question. Sure enough, whenever I asked, Could you tell me where... People were more pleasant and helpful than when I started the question with I or where. I'm sure when they recover the flight box from the fall of man under a fig leaf in the Garden of Eden, it will convince the world of the power of the word you. Eve did not ask Adam to eat the apple. She did not command him to eat the apple. She didn't even say, Adam, I want you to eat this apple. She phrased it, as all big winners would. You will love this apple. That's why he bit. Communication is a sign of sanity. Therapists calculate inmates of mental institutions say I and me 12 times more often than residents of the outside world. As patients' conditions improve, the number of times they use the personal pronouns also diminishes. Continuing up the sanity scale, the fewer times you use I the more sane you seem to your listeners. If you eavesdrop on big winners talking with each other, you'll notice a lot more you than I in their conversation. Technique number 28. Communication. Start every appropriate sentence with you. It immediately grabs your listeners' attention. It gets a more positive response because it pushes the pride button and saves them having to translate it into me terms. When you sprinkle you as liberally as salt and pepper throughout your conversation, your listeners find it an irresistible spice. The next technique concerns a way big winners are silently you-oriented. 29. How to make them feel you don't smile at just anybody. Have you ever seen those low-budget, mail-order fashion catalogs that use the same model throughout? Whether she is engulfed in a wedding gown or partially clad in a bikini, her face sports the same plastic smile. Looking at her, you get the feeling if you rapped on her forehead, a tiny voice would come back saying, Nobody's in here. Whereas models in more sophisticated magazines have mastered a myriad of different expressions, a flirtatious, I've got a secret smile on one page, a quizzical, I think I'd like to get to know you, but I'm not sure smile on the next, and a mysterious Mona Lisa smile on the third. You feel there's a brain running the operation somewhere inside that beautiful head. I once stood in the receiving line of the ship I worked on, along with the captain, his wife, and several other officers. One passenger with a radiant smile started shaking hands down our line. When he got to me, he flashed a shimmering smile, revealing teeth as even and white as keys on a new piano. I was transfixed. It was as though a brilliant light had illuminated the dim ballroom. I wished him a happy cruise and resolved to find this charming gentleman later. Then he was introduced to the next person— out of the corner of my eye, I saw his identical glistening grin. A third person, the same grin. My interest began to dwindle. When he gave his fourth indistinguishable smile to the next person, he started to resemble a Cheshire cat. By the time he was introduced to the fifth person, his consistent smile felt like a strobe light disturbing the ambience of the ballroom. Strobe man went on flashing everybody the same smile down the line. 
I had no further interest in talking with him. Why did this man's stock shoot high in my ticker one minute and plummet the next? Because his smile, although charming, reflected no special reaction to me. Obviously, he gave the same smile to everybody, and by that it lost all its specialness. If Strobeman had given each of us a slightly different smile, he would have appeared sensitive and insightful. Of course, if his smile had been just a tad bigger for me than for the others, I couldn't have waited for the formalities to be over to seek him out in the crowded ballroom. Review Your Repertoire of Smiles If your job required you to carry a gun, you would, of course, learn all about the moving parts before firing it. And before taking aim, you would carefully consider whether it would murder, maim, or merely wound your target. Since your smile is one of your biggest communications weapons, learn all about the moving parts and the effect on your target. Set aside five minutes. Lock your bedroom or bathroom door so your family doesn't think you've gone off the deep end. Now stand in front of the mirror and flash a few smiles. Discover the subtle differences in your repertoire. Just as you would alternate saying, Hello, how do you do, and I am pleased to meet you, when being introduced to a group of people, vary your smile. Don't use the same on each. Let each of your smiles reflect the nuances of your sentiment about the recipient. Technique number 29. The Exclusive Smile if you flash everybody the same smile like a Confederate dollar, it loses value. When meeting groups of people, grace each with a distinct smile. Let your smiles grow out of the beauty big players find in each new face. If one person in a group is more important to you than the others, reserve an especially big flooding smile just for him or her. In Defense of the Quickie there are times, I discovered, when the quick put-on smile works. For example, when you want to engineer the acquaintance of someone to whom you have not had the opportunity to be introduced. In the vernacular, that's pick them up. The smile's pickup power was proven for posterity by solemn researchers at the University of Missouri. They conducted a highly controlled study titled Giving Men the Come On, Effect of Eye Contact and Smiling in a Bar Environment. I kid you not. To prove their hypothesis, female researchers made eye contact with unsuspecting male subjects enjoying a little libation in a local drinking establishment. Sometimes the female researchers followed their glance with a smile. In other cases, no smile. The results? I quote the study. The highest approach behavior, 60%, was observed in the condition in which there was smiling. That translates into layman's English. The guy came over 60% of the time when the lady smiled. Without the smile, he made the approach only 20% of the time. So yes, a smile works for those who wish to pick somebody up. However, in situations where the stakes are higher, try the flooding smile from the first section, and now the exclusive smile. 30. How to Avoid Sounding Like a Jerk Do you remember that scene from the movie classic Annie Hall, where Diane Keaton is first meeting Woody Allen? As she's chatting with him, 
We hear her private thoughts. She's musing to herself. Oh, I hope he's not a jerk like all the others. One of the quickest ways to make a big winner think you are, well, a jerk, is to use a cliché. If you're chatting with a top communicator and even innocently remark, Yes, I was tired as a dog, or She was cute as a button, you've unknowingly laid a linguistic bomb. Big winners silently moan when they hear someone mouth a trite, overworn phrase. Oh, sure, just like the rest of us, big winners find themselves feeling fit as a fiddle, happy as a lark, or high as a kite. Like the rest of humanity, they consider some of their acquaintances crazy as a loon, nutty as a fruitcake, or blind as a bat. Because many of them work hard, many of them are as busy as a bee and get rich as Croesus. Yet would any of them describe themselves in those words? Not in a coon's age. Why? Because when a big winner hears your cliché, you might as well be saying, My powers of imagination are impoverished. I can't think of anything original to say, so I must fall back on these trite, overworn phrases. Mouthing a common cliché around uncommonly successful people brands you as uncommonly common. Technique number 30. Don't touch a cliché with a ten-foot pole. Be on guard. Don't use any clichés when chatting with big winners. Don't even touch one with a ten-foot pole. Never? Not even when hell freezes over? Not unless you want to sound dumb as a doorknob. Instead of coughing up a cliché, roll your own clever phrases by using the next technique. 31. How to use motivational speakers' techniques to enhance your conversation. They say the pen is mightier than the sword. It is, but the tongue is even mightier than the pen. Our tongues can bring crowds to laughter, to tears, and often to their feet in shouting appreciation. Orators have moved nations to war or brought lost souls to God. And what is their equipment? The same eyes, ears, hands, legs, arms, and vocal cords you and I have. Perhaps a professional athlete has a stronger body or a professional singer is blessed with a more beautiful singing voice than the one we were doled out, but the professional speaker starts out with the same equipment we all have. The difference is, these jawsmiths use it all. They use their hands, they use their bodies, and they use specific gestures with heavy impact. They think about the space they're talking in. They employ many different tones of voice. They invoke various expressions. They vary the speed with which they speak. And they make effective use of silence. You may not have to make a formal speech anytime soon, but chances are sometime, probably very soon, you're going to want people to see things your way. Whether it's persuading your family to spend their next vacation at Grandma's or convincing the stockholders in your multi-million dollar corporation that it's time to do a takeover, do it like a pro. Get a book or two on public speaking and learn some of the tricks of the trade. Then put some of that drama into your everyday conversation. A gem for every occasion. If stirring words help make your point, ponder the impact of powerful phrases. They've helped politicians get elected. Read my lips. 
no new taxes, and defendants get acquitted. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. If George H. W. Bush had said, I promise not to raise taxes, or Johnny Cochran, during O.J. Simpson's criminal trial, had said, If the glove doesn't fit, he must be innocent, their bulky sentences would have slipped in and out of the voters' or jurors' consciousness. As every politician and trial lawyer knows, neat phrases make powerful weapons. If you're not careful, your enemies will later use them against you. Read my lips. One of my favorite speakers is a radio broadcaster named Barry Farber, who brightens up late-night radio with sparkling similes. Barry would never use a cliché like, nervous as a cat on a hot tin roof. He'd describe being nervous about losing his job as, I felt like an elephant dangling over a cliff with his tail tied to a daisy. Instead of saying he looked at a pretty woman, he'd say, My eyeballs popped out and dangled by the optic nerve. When I first met him, I asked, Mr. Farber, how do you come up with these phrases? My daddy's Mr. Farber. I'm Barry, he chided, his way of saying, call me Barry. He then candidly admitted, although some of his phrases are original, many are borrowed. Elvis Presley used to say, my daddy's Mr. Presley, call me Elvis. Like all professional speakers, Barry spends several hours a week gleaning through books of quotations and humor. All professional speakers do. They collect bon mots they can use in a variety of situations, most especially to scrape egg off their faces when something unexpected happens. Many speakers use author's and speaker's agent Lily Walters's face-saver lines from her book, What to Say When You're Dying on the Platform. If you tell a joke and no one laughs, try. That joke was designed to get a silent laugh, and it worked. If the microphone lets out an agonizing howl, look at it and say, I don't understand. I brushed my teeth this morning. If someone asks you a question you don't want to answer, could you save that question until I'm finished and well on my way home? All pros think of holes they might fall into and then memorize great escape lines. You can do the same. Look through books of similes to enrich your day-to-day -day conversations. Instead of happy as a lark, try happy as a lottery winner or happy as a baby with its first ice cream cone. Instead of bald as an eagle, try bald as a new marine or bald as a bullfrog's belly. Instead of quiet as a mouse, try quiet as an eel swimming in oil or quiet as a fly lighting on a feather duster. Find phrases that have visual impact. Instead of a cliché like sure as death and taxes, try as certain as beach traffic in July or as sure as your shadow will follow you. Your listeners can't see death or taxes, but they sure can see beach traffic in July or their shadow following them down the street. Try to make your similes relate to the situation. If you're riding in a taxi with someone, as sure as that taxi meter will rise has immediate impact. If you're talking with a man walking his dog, as sure as your dog is thinking about that tree adds a touch of humor. Make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh. Humor enriches any conversation, but not jokes starting with, Hey, did you hear the one about? Plan your humor and make it relevant. 
For example, if you're going to a meeting on the budget, look up money in a quotation book. In an uptight business situation, a little levity shows you're at ease. Once, during an oppressive financial meeting, I heard a top executive say, Don't worry, this company has enough money to stay in business for years, unless we pay our creditors. He broke the tension and won the appreciation of all. Later I saw a similar quote in a humor book attributed to Jackie Mason, the comedian. So what? The exec still came across as a cool communicator with his clever comment. Big players who want to be quoted in the media lie awake at night gnawing the pillow, trying to come up with phrases the press will pick up. A Michigan veterinarian named Timothy, a heavy hitter in his own field but completely unknown outside of it, made national headlines when he planned to attach a pair of feet to a rooster who lost his to frostbite. Why? Because he called it a drumstick transplant. I don't know if a French woman, Jeanne Colmon, then officially the world's oldest person, was looking for publicity on her 122nd birthday. But she made international headlines when she told the media, I've only ever had one wrinkle and I'm sitting on it. Mark Victor Hansen, a big player in his own field but once relatively unknown outside of it, was propelled into national prominence when he came up with a catchy name for his book, co-authored with Jack Canfield, Chicken Soup for the Soul. He told me his original title was 101 Pretty Stories. How far would that have gone? Soon the world was lapping up, among others, his Chicken Soup for the Woman's Soul, Chicken Soup for the Teenage Soul, Chicken Soup for the Mother's Soul, Chicken Soup for the Christian Soul, plus second, third, and fourth servings of chicken soup in hardcover, paperback, audio, video, and calendars. Technique number 31. Use Jawsmith's Jive. Whether you're standing behind a podium facing thousands or behind the barbecue grill facing your family, you'll move, amuse, and motivate with the same skills. Read speakers' books to cull quotations, pull pearls of wisdom, and get gems to tickle their funny bones. Find a few bon mots to let casually slide off your tongue on chosen occasions. If you want to be notable, dream up a crazy quotable. Make them rhyme, make them clever, or make them funny. Above all, make them relevant. A word of warning. No matter how good your material is, it bombs if it doesn't fit the situation. I learned this the hard way during my cruise ship days. On a cruise to England, I decided to give my passengers a reading of the English love poems of Elizabeth Barrett and Robert Browning. You know, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. It was a big hit. The passengers loved it and raved for days. I couldn't walk out on deck without some passenger turning to me and affectionately echoing, how do I love thee? Naturally, I got a pretty swollen head over this performance and fancied myself an eminent poetry reader. I decided to reward the passengers on the next cruise, which was a cruise to the Caribbean and didn't go anywhere in the neighborhood of England, with my spectacular reading of the English love poems. What a bomb! Passengers avoided me on the deck for the rest of the cruise. How did you bore me? 
Let me count the ways. 32. How to banter like the big shots do. Big winners tell it like it is. If you stepped into an elevator full of people speaking Hungarian, you might not recognize they were Hungarian unless you spoke their language. However, the minute you opened your mouth, they'd recognize you're not Hungarian. It's the same with the big cats. If you overhear several of them speaking, you might not recognize they're big cats. However, the minute you opened your mouth, they'd recognize you're not a big cat, unless you spoke their lingo. What are some differences between a big cat's growl and a little cat's insignificant hiss? One of the most blatant is euphemisms. Big cats aren't afraid of real words. They call a spade a spade. Words like toilet paper don't scare them. Little cats hide behind bathroom tissue. If somebody is rich, big cats call it rich. Little cats, oh so embarrassed at the concept of talking about money and polite company, substitute the word wealthy. When little cats use a substitute word or euphemism, they might as well be saying, Whoops, you are better than I am. I'm in polite company now, and so I'll use the nicey-nice word. Big cats are anatomically correct. No cutesy words for body parts. They'll say breasts when they mean breasts. When they say knockers, they mean decorative structures that hang on the front door. And family jewels are in the safe on the wall. If a big cat is ever in doubt about a word, he or she simply resorts to French. If they feel the word buttocks is debatable, derriere will do quite nicely, thank you. Technique number 32. Call a spade a spade. Don't hide behind euphemisms. Call a spade a spade. That doesn't mean big cats use tasteless four-letter words when perfectly decent five- and six-letter ones exist. They've simply learned the king's English, and they speak it. Here's another way to tell the big players from the little ones just by listening to a few minutes of their conversation. 33. How to Avoid the World's Worst Conversational Habit Once I was at a small dinner party given by the president of an advertising agency, Lewis, and his wife, Lillian. The evening started with cocktails, followed by a gourmet meal accompanied by a selection of excellent wines. The conversation had been convivial, the cuisine delicious, and the wine very fine, and very plentiful. At the end of the evening, Lewis raised his glass to make a toast. A few wine droplets sloshed out of his glass onto the tablecloth. A pretty young woman who was the date of a new art director named Bob giggled and said, I can tell you're feeling no pain. Shock waves went around the table. Everyone froze. The host was indeed a bit inebriated. However, alluding to Lewis being a little looped, even in jest, was as though the woman had suddenly smashed the crystal chandelier above the table with her dinner plate. One guest quickly covered the girl's horrifying gaffe by lifting her glass and saying, None of us is. No one in the company of Lewis and Lillian could ever feel any pain. Here's to a truly wonderful evening. Lewis then continued with his toast to the wonderful company, and no one was feeling pain any longer, except Bob, he knew his date's innocent teasing was a black mark, if not in his personnel file, on his personal file. 
The next sure sign of a little cathood is teasing. Little cats go around patting their friends' paunches and saying, Enjoying that cheesecake, huh? Or looking at their balding heads and saying, Hey, hair today, gone tomorrow, huh? They think it's hilarious to make a quip at someone else's expense and say, You don't have an inferiority complex. You are inferior. Hardy har har. Technique number 33. Trash the teasing. A dead giveaway of a little cat is his or her proclivity to tease. An innocent joke at someone else's expense may get you a cheap laugh. Nevertheless, the big cats will have the last one. Because you'll bang your head against the glass ceiling they construct to keep little cats from stepping on their paws. Never, ever make a joke at anyone else's expense. You'll wind up paying for it dearly. 34. How to give them the bad news and have them like you all the more. In ancient Egypt, the pharaoh treated the humblest message runner like a prince when he arrived at the palace, if he brought good news. However, if the exhausted runner had the misfortune to bring the pharaoh unhappy news, his head was chopped off. Shades of that spirit pervade today's conversations. Once a friend and I packed up some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for an outing. As we waltzed happily out the door, picnic basket in hand, a smiling neighbor, rocking away on his porch, looked up at the sky and said, Oh boy, bad day for a picnic. The newscast says it's gonna rain. I wanted to rub his face in my peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Not for his gloomy weather report, for his smile. Several months ago, I was racing to catch a bus. As I breathlessly shoved my handful of cash across the Greyhound counter, the grinning sales agent gushed, Oh, that bus left five minutes ago. Dreams of decapitation. It's not the news that makes someone angry. It's the unsympathetic attitude with which it's delivered. Everyone must give bad news from time to time, and winning professionals do it with the proper attitude. A doctor advising a patient she needs an operation does it with compassion. A boss informing an employee he didn't get the job takes on a sympathetic demeanor. Grief counselors at airports after fatal crashes share the grief-stricken sentiment of relatives. Big winners know, when delivering any bad news, they should share the sentiment of the receiver. Unfortunately, many people are not aware of this sensitivity. When you're weary from a long flight, has a hotel clerk cheerfully chirped that your room isn't ready yet? When you had your heart set on the roast beef, has your waiter merrily warbled that he just served the last piece? When you needed cash for the weekend, has your bank teller gleefully told you your account is overdrawn? It makes you, as a traveler, diner, or a depositor, want to put your fist right through their insensitive grins. Had my neighbor told me of the impending rainstorm with sympathy, I would have appreciated his warning. Had the Greyhound sales clerk sympathetically informed me that my bus had already left, I probably would have said, Oh, that's all right. I'll catch the next one. Big winners, when they bear bad news, deliver bombs with the emotion the bombarded person is sure to have. Technique number 34. It's the receiver's ball. A football player wouldn't last two beats of the time clock if he made blind passes. 
A pro throws the ball with the receiver always in mind. Before throwing out any news, keep your receiver in mind. Then deliver it with a smile, a sigh, or a sob. Not according to how you feel about the news, but how the receiver will take it. Big winners know how to give bad news to people. They also know how to give any news to anyone, even when people are pressuring them. Let's explore that next. 35. How to respond when you don't want to answer and wish they'd shut the heck up. One of my clients, Barbara, a mini-star in the furniture business, recently separated from her husband and business partner, Frank, a megastar in the furniture business. They suffered a long and messy divorce that resulted in them keeping the business jointly but not having to deal with each other. Soon after the divorce, I was at an industry convention with Barbara. Since she and Frank were both beloved in the industry, people were curious about what had happened and how it affected their company. But of course, no one dared ask outright, and Barbara was offering no explanations. I was seated next to Barbara at the gala farewell dinner. Apparently, one of her colleagues at the table couldn't contain her curiosity any longer. During dessert, she leaned over to Barbara and in a hushed voice asked, Barbara, what happened with you and Frank? Barbara, unruffled by the rude question, simply took a spoonful of her cherry's jubilee and said, We've separated, but the company is unaffected. Not satisfied with that answer, the woman pumped harder. Are you still working together? Barbara took another bite of her dessert and repeated in precisely the same tone of voice, We've separated, but the company is unaffected. The frustrated interrogator was not going to give up easily. Are you both still working in the company? Barbara, appearing not the least disturbed by the woman's incontinent insistence, scooped the last cherry out of her dish, smiled, looked directly at her, and said in the identical tone of voice, We've separated, but the company is unaffected. That shut her up. Barbara had shown her big winner's badge by using the broken record technique, the most effective way to curtail an unwelcome cross-examination. Technique number 35. The Broken Record Whenever someone persists in questioning you on an unwelcome subject, simply repeat your original response. Use precisely the same words in precisely the same tone of voice. Hearing it again usually quiets them down, if your rude interrogator hangs on like a leech, your next repetition never fails to flick them off. 36. How to Talk to a Celebrity Suppose you've just settled in for dinner at a nice restaurant. You look over at the next table, and who do you see? Is it really he? Could it possibly be? It's got to be a look-alike. No, it isn't. It really is... Woody Allen. Substitute any celebrity here. Your favorite movie star, politician, broadcaster, boss who owns the company that owns the company you work for. And there the celestial body is in the flesh, sitting not ten feet from you. What should you do? Nothing. Big shots don't slobber over stars. Let the luminary enjoy a brief moment of anonymity. 
if he or she should cast a glance in your direction, give a smile and a nod, then waft your gaze back to your dining companion. You will be a lot cooler in the eyes of your dinner partner if you take it all in your stride. Now, if you just can't resist this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to press the flesh of the megastar and tell him or her of your admiration, here's how to do it with grace. Wait until you or the luminary are leaving the restaurant. After the check has been paid, and you will obviously not be taking much of his or her time, you may make your approach. Say something like, Mr. Allen, I just want to tell you how much pleasure your wonderful films have given me over the years. Thank you so much. Did you pick up the subtlety here? You are not complimenting his work. After all, he might well ask himself, who are you to judge whether I am a great filmmaker or not? You can only speak from your own perspective. You do this by telling him how much pleasure his work has given you. If it's your boss's, boss's, boss's boss, whom the fates have sent to bask in your adulation, do the same. Do not say, Bill, or Mr. Gates, you really run a great company. Lowly geek, he thinks. Who are you to judge? Instead, tell him what an honor it is to work for him. Obviously, this is not the moment to detail the intricacies of your improvements on image editing software for digitizing photographs. Then let your body language express that if Woody or Bill or the other megastar wants to leave it at that, you are happy with the exchange. If, however, the megastar is captivated by you, or has had so much liquid merriment that he or she has decided to mingle with the masses tonight, then all bets are off. You're on your own. Enjoy. Until you pick up the first body language sign that they would like to end it. Think of yourself as a ballroom dance student waltzing with your teacher. He leads, you follow, and he tells you when the waltz is over. Incidentally, if the megastar is with a companion and your conversation goes on for more than a few moments, direct some comments at the companion. If the satellite is in such stellar company, he or she is probably also an accomplished person. Felicia, a friend of mine, is a talented trial lawyer who is married to a local TV show host. Because Tom is on television, people recognize him wherever they go, and Felicia gets ignored. Felicia tells me how frustrating it is, even for Tom. Whenever they go to a party, people gush all over Tom, and Felicia's fascinating work hardly ever gets mentioned. She and Tom used to love going out to dinner, but now they hide out at home in the evenings. Why? Because they can't stand the interruptions of overly effervescent fans. I love what you used to be, you has-been. Another sensitivity. The film star is probably obsessed with his last film, the politician with her last election, a corporate mogul with his last takeover, an author with her last novel, and so forth. So when discussing the stars, the politicians, the moguls, the authors, or any VIP's work, try to keep your comments to current or recent work. Telling Woody Allen how much you loved his 1980 film Stardust Memories would not endear you to him. What about all my wonderful films since, thinks he. Stick to the present or very recent past if possible. Technique number 36. 
Big shots don't slobber. People who are VIPs in their own right don't slobber over celebrities. When you are chatting with one, don't compliment her work. Simply say how much pleasure or insight it's given you. If you do single out any one of the star's accomplishments, make sure it's a recent one, not a memory that's getting yellow in her scrapbook. If the queen bee has a drone sitting with her, find a way to involve him in the conversation. A final celebrity codicil. Suppose you are fortunate enough to have one at your party. To shine some starlight on your party, don't ask the TV host to say a few words. Don't ask the singer to sing a song. What looks effortless to the rest of us because they seem so comfortable performing is work for them. You wouldn't ask an accountant guest to look over your books or a dentist to check out your third left molar. Let the dignitary drink. Let the luminary laugh. Celebrities are people, too, and they like their time off. 37. How to Make Them Want to Thank You To wrap up our section on sounding like the big boys and big girls, here is a simple and gracious little maneuver. It not only signals people you're a top communicator, but it encourages them to keep doing nice things for you, or complimenting you, or doing business with you, or loving you. It is very short. It is very sweet. It is very simple. You can use it with everyone in your life. When it becomes instinctive, you'll find yourself using it every day. Very simply, never let the phrase thank you stand naked and alone. Always make it thank you for something. People use the bare exposed thank you so often that people don't even hear it anymore. When we buy the morning newspaper, we flash a naked thank you at the vendor when he gives us our nickels change. Is that the same thank you you want to give a valued customer who makes a big purchase in your store? Or a loved one who cooks you a delicious dinner? Whenever the occasion warrants more than an unconscious acknowledgement, dress up your thank you with the reason. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being so understanding. Thank you for waiting. Thank you for being such a good customer. Thank you for being so loving. Often when I disembark an airplane, the captain and first officer are standing by the cockpit door to bid the passengers farewell. I say, thanks for getting us here. Admittedly, that's carrying never-the-naked-thank-you technique to extremes, but it has a surprising effect. They fall all over themselves with, oh, thanks for flying with us. Technique number 37. Never-the-naked-thank-you. Never let the phrase thank you stand alone. From A to Z, always follow it with four. From thank you for asking to thank you for zipping me up. Thank you for listening to this section of how to talk to anyone. Now let us move on to another conversation challenge. How to talk knowledgeably with everyone. From groups of accountants to Zen Buddhists. No matter how little you might have in common. Part 4. How to be an insider in any crowd. What are they all talking about? Has it ever happened to you? Everyone at the party is speaking gobbledygook. They're all discussing faulty audits, code constraints, 
or the library market, and you have no idea what they're talking about. It's because everybody at the party is an accountant, an architect, or a publisher, and you're not. So you stand there with a pasty smile on your face, not opening your mouth. If you do, you fear the wrong thing will come out. Paranoia sets in. Everybody will snicker at you. You're an outsider, so you suffer in silence. In high school, I suffered a massive case of silent outsider syndrome, especially around males. All they wanted to talk about was cars. I knew nothing about cars. The only time I'd ever set foot in a body shop was to get a suntan. Well, one fateful day, Mama came home with a gift for me that transformed my teenage existence from shy to sociable. It was a book on all the current model cars and their differences over and under the hood. One reading, and I became fluent in Fords, Chevys, and Buicks. I no longer hyperventilated when boys said words like carburetor, alternator, camshaft, or exhaust manifold. I didn't need to learn a lot, just enough to ask the right questions to get the guys talking. When I'd learned to speak car with the boys, it worked wonders for my social life. Cut to today. We grown-up boys and girls also have our favorite topics that usually involve our work or our hobbies. When we're with people in our own field or who share our interests, we open up like small-town gossips. Even engineers who have a constant case of cat-got-their-tongue start gabbing about greasy turbines and various projects when they're together. To outsiders, our conversation sounds like gobbledygook but we know precisely what it's about. It's our own jobbledygook or hobbledygook. You fear you'll find yourself in a party of squash players when you're the type of person who'd rather be in court than on court? Don't panic hearing words like lobbing and hitting rails roll off the squash players' tongues. So what if the only experience you've ever had with squash was the mashed acorn variety on your plate next to the turkey last Thanksgiving? All you need is the few techniques that follow. Just as anglers throw out a dragonfly to get the fish to bite, all you have to do is throw out the right questions to get people to open up. Dale Carnegie's adage, Show sincere interest and people will talk, only go so far. As they say in poker, it takes jacks or better to open. And in conversation, it takes cursory knowledge or better about their field to get them to really open up. You must have knowledgeable curiosity, the kind that makes you sound like you're worth talking to. In this section, we explore techniques that are open sesames to get people gabbing with you like an insider. 38. How to be a modern-day Renaissance man or woman Whenever friends visit my hometown, New York City, I warn them, never ask anyone riding in the subway for directions. Because I'll get mugged? They fearfully ask. No, just because you'll never get where you're going. Most Big Apple subway riders know only two things about the subway, where they get on and where they get off. They know nothing about the rest of the system. Most people are like NYC strap hangers when it comes to their hobbies and interests. They know their own pastimes, but all the others are like unvisited stations. 
my unmarried and wishing she weren't friend Rita, has a bad case of bowler's thumb. Every Wednesday night she's bowling up a storm with her friends. She is forever discussing her scores, her averages, and her high game. Another single and searching friend Walter is into whitewater rafting. He talks endlessly with his paddling friends about which rivers he's run, which outfitters he's gone with, and which class rapids he prefers. Thinking my two single friends might hit it off, I introduced Walter the paddler to Rita the bowler and mentioned their respective passions. Oh, you're a bowler, said Walter. Yes, Rita smiled demurely, awaiting more questions about her big bowling turn-on. Walter was silent. Masking her disappointment, Rita said, Um, Leal tells me you're into water rafting. Walter smiled proudly, awaiting further friendly interrogation on paddling. Uh, that must be exciting. Isn't it dangerous? Was the best Rita could do. No, it's not dangerous. Walter patronizingly responded to her typical outsider's question. Then the conversation died. During the deafening silence, I remember thinking, if Rita had run just one river, if Walter had bowled just one game, their lives might be different now. Conversation could have flowed, and who knows what else might have flowered. Go fly a kite. The scramble therapy technique is salvation from such disappointing encounters. It will transform you into a modern-day Renaissance man or woman who comfortably can discuss a variety of interests. Scramble therapy is, quite simply, scrambling up your life and participating in an activity you'd never think of indulging in. Just one out of every four weekends, do something totally out of your pattern. Do you usually play tennis on weekends? This weekend, go hiking. Do you usually go hiking? This weekend, take a tennis lesson. Do you bowl? Leave that to your buddies this time. Instead, go whitewater rafting. Oh, you were planning on running some rapids like you do every warm weekend? Forget it. Go bowling. Go to a stamp exhibition. Go to a chess lecture. Go ballooning. Go bird watching. Go to a pool hall. Go kayaking. Go fly a kite. Why? because it will give you conversational fodder for the rest of your life. From that weekend on, you'll sound like an insider with all the hikers, stamp collectors, ballooners, birders, billiards players, kayakers, and kitists you ever meet, just by doing their activity once. If you take a piece of blue litmus paper and dip it in a huge vat of acid, the tip turns pink. If you take another blue litmus paper and dip it into just one minuscule drop of acid on a glass slide, the tip turns just as pink. Compare this to participating in an activity just one time. A sampling gives you 80% of the conversational value. You learn the insider's questions to ask. You start using the right terms. You'll never be at a loss again when the subject of extracurricular interests comes up which it always does. Do you speak scuba? I'm not a certified scuba diver. However, six years ago in Bermuda, I saw a sign. Resort dives, $25. No scuba experience necessary. In just three hours, 
I received the best crash course in talking with scuba divers the world offers. First, I was given a quick lesson in the pool. Then, struggling to stay erect under the weight of my oxygen tank, regulator, buoyancy compensator, and weight belt, I went clumping out to the dive boat. Sitting there on the rocking dinghy, fondling my mask and fins like worry beads, I overheard the certified divers asking each other insider questions. Where were you certified? Where have you dived? Do you prefer wrecks or reefs? Ever done any night diving? Are you into underwater photography? Do you dive on a computer? What's your longest bottom time? Did you ever get the bends? This is scuba lingo. I now speak scuba. To this day, whenever I meet divers, I have the right questions to ask and subjects to discuss, and the right ones to avoid. Like how much I like seafood. That's like telling a cat lover how much you love tender barbecued kitten. I can now ask my new friends which of the scuba hotspots they've been to. Cozumel, Cayman, Cancun. Then, if I want to really show off, I ask if they've been to Truck Lagoon in the far Pacific, the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, or the Red Sea. All the insider terms now roll comfortably off my tongue. Before my scramble therapy experience, I'd be calling their beloved wrecks and reefs sunken ships and coral. Understandable words, but not scuba words, not insider words. Upon meeting a scuba diver, I probably would have asked, Oh, scuba diving, that must be interesting. Um, aren't you afraid of sharks? Not a good way to get off on the right fin with a diver. Think about it. Suppose at a dinner party the table conversation turns to scuba diving. If you too had done your one-time-only dive, you'd ask your diving dinner companion if he likes night diving or whether he prefers diving on wrecks or reefs. He'll never believe it when you tell him the deepest water you've ever submerged yourself in is your own bathtub. Then you turn to the bungee jumpers seated on your left and ask him, Do you prefer chest waist jumps or ankle jumps? If the conversation then changes to tennis, or martial arts, or chess, or coin collecting, or even bird watching, you can keep up and keep the conversation going. What a guy! What a gal! Technique number 38. Scramble therapy. Once a month, scramble your life. Do something you'd never dream of doing. Participate in a sport. Go to an exhibition. Hear a lecture on something totally out of your experience. You get 80% of the right lingo and insider questions from just one exposure. 39. How to sound like you know all about their job or hobby. Even more insidious than hobby talk is job speak, or jobbledygook. I still harbor social nightmares of the evening I attended a party thrown by a couple who worked in computer database management. As I walked in the door, I overheard one chap saying to another, When the domain relational calculus is restricted to safe expressions, it's equivalent to the turpal relational. That's all I stayed around for. I knew I wasn't going to understand one bit or bite of conversation the rest of the evening. It made me long for the days when a mouse meant the furry little fellow who loves cheese, 
Windows were the kind you bought drapes for, and the web was something spiders trapped flies in. I knew I was going to need some technical support if I was going to be compatible with this crowd. I decided then and there to learn some of the opening questions database management types ask each other. Which I did. Now I can't wait for a second chance at that crowd because I'm armed with questions like, What raid level are you using? And what data warehousing product do you use? All you need are a few insider opening questions to get you started with any group. You ask questions, listen to the responses, and indulge in elementary on-target conversation with them for a moment or two about their field. Then change the subject ASAP. You don't want to fake you are more knowledgeable about their field than you really are. It's all in the opening question. A tennis player can tell immediately from just appraising your opening serve how good a player you are. Is it going to be great playing with you or a real bore? It's the same in communicating. Just from your verbal opening serve, someone knows if it's going to be interesting talking with you about their life or interests, or dull, dull, dull. For example, suppose I'm introduced to someone and the first words out of her mouth are, Oh, you're a writer. When are you going to write the great American novel? Yikes. I know I'm talking with someone who is unfamiliar with my world. We'll chat, but I prefer to change the subject. And soon, my conversation partner. If, however, my new acquaintance says, Oh, you're a writer. Do you write fiction or nonfiction? Bingo. Now I know I'm with a person who knows about my world. Why? Because that is the first question all writers ask each other. I enjoy talking to this inquisitor because I presume she has more insights into the writing world. Even if we quickly get off the subject of writing, she has come across as a well-informed individual. Every job, every sport, every interest has insider opening questions that everybody in the same field asks, and it's dumb outsider questions that they never ask each other. When an astronaut meets another astronaut, he asks, what missions have you been on? Never. How do you go to the bathroom up there? A dentist asks another dentist, Are you in general practice or do you have a specialty? Never. Heard any good pain jokes lately? The good news is beginning jobbledygook is an easy language. You don't need to master buzzwords, only a few opening questions to make you sound like an insider. Then, here's the fun part. When you tell them you're not connected to their field, they're all the more impressed. What a knowledgeable person, they say to themselves. Help! Everybody there will be an artist. It's not hard to harvest good jobbledygook. Let's say you've been invited to a gallery opening where you'll be meeting many artists. If you don't speak artist, go through your Rolodex to see if you have an artist friend or two. Aha, you found one. Well, sort of. Your friend Sally attended art school. You call her up and ask, Sally, I know this sounds silly, but I've been invited to an event where I'm bound to be talking with a lot of artists. Could you give me a few good questions to ask? Sally might find your query a tad unusual, but your diligence should impress her. Maybe she'll say, 
Well, ask artists what medium they work in. Medium? You ask. Sure, she'll tell you. That's the insider's way to ask if they work with acrylics, oil, charcoal, pen, and so forth. Oh. Don't ask artists to describe their work, she warns. They feel theirs is a visual medium that can't be described. Oh. And don't ask them if their work is in a gallery. Oh? That could be a sore point. Instead, ask, is there any place I might see your work? They'll love that because even if they're not represented by a gallery, they can invite you to their studio to possibly buy their work. Technique number 39. Learn a little jobbledygook. Big winners speak jobbledygook as a second language. What is jobbledygook? It's the language of other professions. Why speak it? It makes you sound like an insider. How do you learn it? You'll find no jobbledygook discs in the language section of your bookstore, but the lingo is easy to pick up. Simply ask a friend who speaks the lingo of the crowd you'll be with to teach you a few opening questions. The words are few, and the rewards are manifold. That's all you need to get started. Two good opening art questions and a warning against the most asked dumb outsider question— Let's say you've given a great opening serve with the right question on their job. You've slammed a swift ball dead center into their conversational court. Happily, thinking they're with an ace player, they answer your question. Then they put a little spin on the ball and send it lobbing right back into your court, and it's time for a follow-up question. Whoops, what to do now? If you don't want to come out of the bluffer's closet just yet— you must master the next technique, bearing their hot button. 40. How to bear their hot button. Elementary Doc Talk My friend John, a physician, recently married a charming Japanese woman, Yamika. John told me the first time they were invited to a party to meet many of John's colleagues, Yamika was panic-stricken. She wanted to make a good impression— yet she was tense about talking to American doctors. John was the only one she'd ever met, and during their romance they didn't spend a whole lot of time discussing medicine. John told her, Don't worry about it, Yami. They all ask each other the same old questions. When you meet them, just ask, What's your specialty? And are you affiliated with a hospital? Then, to get into deeper conversation, he continued, Throw out questions like, How's your relationship with your hospital? Or, How's the current medical environment affecting you? These are hot issues with doctors because everything's changing in healthcare. John said Yamika delivered the lines verbatim. She circulated the party asking the various doctors' specialties and inquiring about their affiliations and relationships with their hospitals. As a result, she was the hit of the party. Many of John's colleagues later congratulated him on having found such a charming and insightful woman. Getting the Real Grabber It's not just doctors. Every profession has concerns that are all the buzz within the industry. The rest of the world, however, knows little about these fixations. For example, independent booksellers constantly complain that big superstore chains are taking over the industry. 
Accountants lie awake nights worrying about liability insurance for faulty audits, and dentists grind their teeth over OSHA and EPA regulations. Oh, us writers, too. We're always bellyaching about magazines not paying us for electronic rights to our precious words. Suppose some hapless soul were unlucky enough to find himself in a party of writers, making conversation with these folks, who seldom know what they think until they see what they say, is no easy task for one who is accustomed to communicating in the spoken word. However, if before the party the non-writer had called just one writer acquaintance and asked about the burning issues, he'd have had hot conversation with the wordsmiths all evening. I call the technique bearing their hot button. Back to the art show you're about to attend. You can't let Sally hang up yet. She's given you the two best opening questions for artists. But don't let her go until you get the real conversational grabber. Ask her the hottest issues going on in the art world. She might think a minute and then say, Well, there's always art prices. Art prices? you ask. Yes, she explains. For example, in the 1980s, the art world was very market-driven. Prices went sky-high because some investors and status-seekers paid exorbitant amounts. We feel that kind of took art away from the masses. Wow, now you're really armed with some good insider art talk. Technique number 40. Bearing their hot button. Before jumping blindly into a bevy of bookbinders or a drove of dentists, find out what the hot issues are in their fields. Every industry has burning concerns the outside world knows little about. Ask your informant to bear the industry buzz. Then, to heat the conversation up, push those buttons. See you at the big one. While you're at it, don't forget to grill your informant for special insider greetings to use when you're with their gang. For example, actresses cringe if they hear good luck before a show, but they smile at well-wishers who say, Break a leg. Break a leg, however, is not appropriate for runners before a marathon. That's the last thought they want to have. The only thing they want to break is their personal record. Try, have a personal best. Firefighters who work on shift seldom see each other except, of course, at the biggest blazes. Thus the firefighters greeting, See you at the big one. Once, driving in a sleepy town you'd have to work at getting lost in, I succeeded. I was hopelessly turned around. Happily, I spotted the firehouse and a couple of bored firefighters lounging out front. Excuse me, can you tell me the way back to Route 50? I called out the window. I could tell from their attitude they thought I was an idiot. Nevertheless, they lethargically pointed me in the right direction. As I drove off, I called out, Thanks, guys. See you at the big one. In the rearview mirror, I saw huge smiles break out on their faces as they stood up in unison and waved goodbye. The disoriented, dizzy blonde driving off had won their respect with their insider salute. 41. How to Secretly Learn About Their Lives Let's say your paper carrier has just hurled the newspaper from his bike to your front door. You pour a cup of coffee and get comfortable to catch up on what's happening in the world. 
your world, that is. Do you flip first to the international news, the fashion section, the sports page, the entertainment section, maybe the comics? Whichever section you usually flip to first, tomorrow don't. Turn to any other section, preferably one you hardly ever read. Why? Because it will familiarize you with other worlds so that you can soon discuss anything with anybody, no matter how little you have in common. How about the real estate section? Yawn. Maybe you don't find real estate especially engrossing. However, sooner or later you're going to find yourself with a group of people who are discussing properties, deals, and today's market. Scanning the real estate section just once every few weeks will keep you au courant with their conversation. The advertising column? Maybe you think the world would be a far, far better place without Madison Avenue. But your bottom line won't be better off if you can't hold your own discussing matters with the marketing maven you've just contracted to advertise your company's widgets. Just a few peeks at the advertising news section, and you'll soon be chatting about campaigns and creative people and doing print or TV. Instead of saying words, you'll be saying copy. Instead of the agency, you'll be bandying about real insider terms like the shop. Using outsider words is one of the biggest giveaways that you are not in the know. On the ship, if a passenger asked any of my staff, how long have you been working on the boat, they'd squelch a groan. Cruise staffers proudly worked on a ship, and the word boat revealed the passenger as a real landlubber. The right word can perform conversational miracles. In the receiving line, whenever passengers asked our laconic captain, when did you first become a master, or what was your first command? He would hold up the entire line of people snaking around the ballroom waiting to shake his hand. Captain Caffiero would enthusiastically recount his naval history to the savvy inquirer who might have just learned the words master or command last week in the newspaper shipping notices. If the passenger had simply said, How long have you been a captain? Or, What was your first boat? he or she would have gotten the captain's usual Italian gentleman's version of the bum's rush. Soon you'll become addicted to the high that establishing rapport with so many people gives you. All it takes is reading different sections of the newspaper. Pump their pulp for even more fuel. Then, when you crave a bigger hit of insider lingo, start reading trade journals— those are the closed circulation magazines that go to members of various industries. Ask your friends in different jobs to lend you one so you'll have even more fuel for the conversational fire. All industries have one or two. You'll see big glossy rags with names like automotive news, restaurant business, pool and spa news, trucking industry, and even hogs today for people in the pig business. Excuse me, they call themselves swine practitioners. Hey, you never know when to make your next big sale it will help to speak pig. Any one issue will give you a sample of their lingo and inform you of the hottest issues in that field. When it comes to people's hobbies and interests, browse through magazines on running, working out, bicycling, skiing, swimming, and surfing. 
Large magazine stores carry biker rags, boxer rags, bowler rags, even bull riding rags. You'll find thousands of special interest magazines published every month. Several years ago, I got hooked on buying a different one each week. It paid off quickly when a potential consulting client invited me to dinner at her home. She had a beautiful garden, and thanks to Flower and Garden magazine, I could throw out insider terms like ornamentals, annuals, and perennials. I could even keep up when the discussion turned to the advantages of growing from seeds or bulbs. Because I was so fluent in Flower, she invited me to take a longer walk with her to see her private back gardens. As we strolled, I gradually changed the subject from chrysanthemums to the consulting work I could do for her company. Who was leading whom down the garden path? Technique number 41. Read their rags. Is your next big client a golfer, runner, swimmer, surfer, or skier? Are you attending a social function filled with accountants, or Zen Buddhists, or anything in between? There are untold thousands of monthly magazines serving every imaginable interest. You can dish up more information than you'll ever need to sound like an insider with anyone just by reading the rags that serve their racket. Have you read your latest copy of Zoo News yet? Is the world getting smaller, or are we getting bigger? Today's Renaissance man or woman is comfortable and confident anywhere. The next technique helps you be an insider wherever you find yourself on the planet, and it saves you from fulfilling the world's fantasy of the ugly American. 42. How to Talk When You're in Other Countries Say you're traveling abroad on business and you want to be a global insider. What's the first thing on your to-do list? Get a passport and a phrase book, right? After all, who wants to wander around Rome not knowing how to ask for a restroom? Or be thirsty in Kuala Lumpur not knowing how to ask for a soda? However, there's something most of us forget to pack, often with dire consequences. A book on international customs. A friend of mine, a fellow speaker named Geraldine, was excited about her first speech in Japan. To be comfy on her long flight to Tokyo, she donned her favorite designer jeans and a casual jacket. Fourteen hours and 6,737 miles later, four impeccably dressed Japanese gentlemen greeted her at Narita Airport. Smiling and bowing low, they handed her their business cards. With her carry-on bag in one hand, Jerry took their cards with the other. She thanked them, glanced briefly at the cards, and packed them safely into her back pocket. She then pulled one of her business cards out of her purse and, sensitive to the fact that they might have difficulty pronouncing Geraldine, wrote her nickname, Jerry, above her printed name. The gentleman hovered over her card, turning it over to examine it a few times, before one of them put it in his briefcase. When the five of them arrived at the hotel, they invited Jerry for tea in the lobby. While sipping tea, the gentleman presented her with a small gift, which she eagerly opened. One of Jerry's most charming qualities is her instinctive warmth and effusiveness. She was thrilled with the gift, and, in typical Jerry style, she squealed, 
Oh, it's beautiful, as she gave each of the gentlemen a little hug. At this point, the four Japanese gentlemen stood up in unison like four frowning Siamese twins and, bowing only very slightly, mumbled sayonara and promptly left. Poor Jerry was flabbergasted. What did she do wrong? Everything. First, the jeans. Even if you're coming off a bicycle in Asia, you do not meet clients casually dressed. The second mistake was Jerry's vulgar handling of their business cards. In Asia, the business card is one of the most important protocol tools. It is always presented and accepted reverently with both hands. Except in Muslim Asia, where the left hand is considered unclean. Jerry then put their cards away much too quickly. In Asia, people use business cards as a conversation starter. You chat about each other's cards and work and do not put theirs away until they gently and respectfully place yours in safekeeping. Shoving it into her back jeans pocket was the ultimate disrespect. Jerry didn't discover her fourth gaffe until she returned home. One of her colleagues, Bill, a seasoned business traveler, analyzed the fiasco for her. Bill told her the reason the gentleman had turned Geraldine's card over and over when she gave it to them at the airport was to find her name, title, and company printed in Japanese on the other side. The flip side of Jerry's card was, of course, blank. Then, fifth horror of horrors, Jerry should not have written on the card. Cards in Asia are not exactly sacred, but one should never deface them with messy handwriting. The sad tale of Jerry and the Japanese gets worse. Bill broke the bad news to her. She should not have opened the gift in front of her clients. Why? Because in a land where saving face is critical, it would be embarrassing to discover the gift they gave was not as nice as the one they received. Yikes, Jerry hadn't even given them a gift. Gaff number seven. Jerry's little squeal when receiving the gift was also a boo-boo. In Asia, the lower the tone of voice, the higher the rank. The final flub was, of course, giving the gentleman a thank-you hug. Hugging, highly revered in certain parts of the world, is, in Japan, absolutely unacceptable with a new client. Needless to say, Jerry has not been invited back to Japan. However, she does have a gig coming up in El Salvador. This time, she's smart. She's studying up on the customs there. Happily, she's finding she can hug to her heart's content. However, she shouldn't use her or anybody else's first name. Oh, and she must not introduce herself as an American. After all, Salvadorans are Americans, too. The differences round the world go on and on. Whenever I travel... I have to hit myself over the head and realize I'm not in the anything-goes-old-USA. I love to travel in jeans. I'm an incurable hugger, and I can't wait to see what's in a gift box anybody gives me. However, whenever I plan to leave Uncle Sam's shores, I check on foreign customs to see how much of myself I can be. Technique number 42. Clear Customs. Before putting one toe on foreign soil, get a book on do's and taboos around the world. Before you shake hands, give a gift, make gestures, or even compliment anyone's possessions, check it out. 
your gaffe could gum up your entire gig. There are some excellent books on international customs. Don't be like another hapless colleague of mine who almost blew a big business deal with a Brazilian. Just before signing the contract, he gave the okay sign with his thumb and forefinger. Little did he know he was telling his new business partner to go have intercourse with himself. You never know until it's too late. Now we come to where being an insider shows immediate, tangible, and calculable rewards, and where being an outsider really hurts, right in your pocket or purse. 43. How to talk them into getting the insider's price on practically anything you buy. Never underestimate human ingenuity when it comes to getting what you want. Many people expand the adage, all's fair in love and war, to all is fair in love, war, and buying what I want. To get a table at a posh restaurant on a busy night, using a celebrity name is an old ploy. My favorite maitre d' told me he gets a lot of Robert De Niro's phoning in a reservation. When their party of six or eight arrives, he hears, I'm so sorry, Rob wasn't feeling well this evening. One woman, frustrated when her fake celebrity name didn't work, shouted at him, Look, who the hell do I have to be to get a table? I'll be anyone you want me to be. Goldie Hawn, Steffi Graf, Fergie, just tell me. Some people try a last-minute approach. They simply walk up to the Metro D at an overbooked restaurant, point to any name on the reservation book and say, That's us. You'll witness the same cunning at overbooked hotels. Several months ago, I was checking into a popular hotel for which, fortunately, I had a confirmed reservation. A loud-mouthed man in front of me in line shouted at the desk clerk, What do you mean, no room? I'm staying in this hotel tonight. If you don't have a room, I'm sleeping right here on the floor. His temper tantrum was not working. And I warn you, he continued, I sleep in the nude. He got a room. These crafty, childish tactics are not recommended. Rather, I suggest a more principled technique called bluffing for bargains. It was born one afternoon sitting with an insurance broker, Mr. Carson. He was trying to sell me a homeowner's policy. Of course, I wanted the most coverage for the least cash. Carson was a smooth operator, and he was patiently explaining to me in layman's terms the benefits of certain riders he was pushing. Just as he started discussing disasters like wars and hurricanes, his phone rang. With apologies, he picked up the receiver. It was one of his colleagues. Suddenly, a metamorphosis took place before my eyes. The sophisticated salesman became a palsy-walsy, regular, down-home kind of guy, chatting it up with his old buddy about umbrellas. I thought they were discussing the weather. Then the conversation turned to floaters. I now assumed they were talking about an eye problem. It took a while for me to realize that umbrella policies and floaters were part of the insurance ease they were speaking. A few minutes later, Carson said, Yeah, okay, so long, buddy, and put the phone down. He cleared his throat and again transmogrified back into the formal sales agent patiently defining damages and deductibles to a naive client. Sitting there listening to baffle gab like subrogation, 
and pro-rata liability, I began to ponder. If Carson's colleague who just called wanted to buy insurance, he would have gotten a much better policy much cheaper. In practically every industry, vendors give two prices on goods or services, one to insiders and one to you and me. Before I let myself get angry about this, I thought it through. Is it unfair? Not really. If the vendor doesn't have to spend time being salesman or psychologist answering the endless stream of novice questions, he can afford to give his best price. Carson wouldn't have had to take twenty minutes explaining to his colleague, as he did to me, why, if a tornado takes your house, it's considered an act of God. Therefore, you lose. When knowledgeable associates buy products, the vendor is happily reduced to nothing more than a purchasing agent. For very little work, he makes a small profit and is satisfied. A little bit of knowledge goes a long way when you're buying something. If you have insight into your real estate broker's bottom line, he's more apt to give you the better price. If you are facile with the insider words caterers and car salesmen use to pad their profits, if you're savvy to techniques moving companies and mechanics use to bilk the unsuspecting, if you are on the lookout for lawyers' methods of fattening fees, in short, if you know the ropes, you will not get ripped off. You don't need to know a lot, just a few insider terms. The pro assumes, since you are conversant in some esoteric industry terms, you also know the best deal and rock-bottom price. No one put it better than my house painter, Iggy. Sure, he told me. You gotta know how to talk to a painter. Not me, but a lot of them other guys. They're gonna get whatever they can. It's only human nature. Especially if you're a woman and you deal with them smart, like I'm gonna tell you how, their hair will stand on end. They'll say to themselves, Hey, this is no babe in the woods. I better deal straight. Okay, Iggy, how? He said, Tell them, guys, look, the walls need very little prepping. You're not going to have to spend much time scraping and spackling. It's a clean job. Iggy told me these few sentences alone can save you hundreds of dollars. Why? Right away the painter knows you know the score, and that the most time-consuming part for him is preparing the surface, prepping in painterese. Therefore, it's his biggest markup item. Then, Iggy continued, when you tell them there'll be no cutting in, painting two colors next to each other, your price goes down again. Be sure and tell them not to leave any holidays, unpainted or sparsely painted spots, and you get a more careful job. I'm only sorry I don't have an Iggy in every field to give me a crash course in how to deal. How to deal when there's no Iggy in your life. Here's how to get the best price and the best deal from anyone. Find your Iggy informer. If you have a friend in the business, get the lingo from him. If not, instead of going straight to the vendor you want to buy from, visit several others first. Talk with them. Learn a little lingo from each. For instance, suppose you want to buy a diamond. Instead of going right to your favorite jewelry shop and asking dumbbell diamond questions, go to the competition. Make friends with the sales clerk and pick up a few gems of diamond Ds. You'll learn jewelers say stones, not diamonds. 
When you're talking about the top of the stone, they say table. The widest part is the girdle. The bottom is the cutlet. If the stone looks yellow, don't say yellow, say cape. If you see flaws, don't say flaws, say inclusions or glets. If you still don't like the stone, don't say, I'd like to see something better, say finer. Don't ask me why, that's just the way the diamond crowd talks. Then, when you've got your lingo down, go to where you want to buy. Because you now speak diamond, you get a much better price. Soon you'll be asking furriers where the skins were dressed, moving companies for their ICC performance record, and lawyers the hourly rate of paralegals and associates. Then these folks, like Iggy the painter, will say to themselves, Hey, this is no babe in the woods. I better deal straight. Technique number 43. Bluffing for bargains. The haggling skills used in ancient Arab markets are alive and well in contemporary America for big-ticket items. Your price is much lower when you know how to deal. Before every big purchase, find several vendors, a few to learn from and one to buy from. Armed with a few words of industry ease, you're ready to head for the store where you're going to buy. Let us now delve deeper into the world of being an insider. This time we explore how to give your conversation partner the sense that you share not only experiences, but the heavy stuff. You share beliefs and values in life. Part 5. How to Sound Like Your Peas in a Pod Why, we're just alike. If you squint your eyes and look up carefully at a flight of birds, you'll see finches flying with finches, swallows soaring with swallows, and yellow birds winging it with yellow birds. The avian apartheid escalates. You'll never see a barn swallow with a bank swallow or even a yellow bird hanging out with a yellow finch. Somebody said it shorter. Birds of a feather flock together. Happily, humans are smarter than birds. In one respect, at least, we have brains capable of overcoming bias. Really smart human beings work together, play together, and break bread together. Does that mean their comfort level is high? Well, that depends on the human being. Our purpose here is not to examine the absurdity of apartheid. It is to leave no stone unturned in making sure people are completely comfortable doing business or pleasure with you. It has been proven beyond a doubt people are most receptive to those they feel have the same values in life. In one study, individuals were first given a personality and beliefs test, they were then paired off with a partner and told to go spend time together. Before meeting, half the couples were told that they were very similar in beliefs to their partner. The other half were told they were dissimilar. Neither statement was true. However, when quizzed afterward on how much they liked each other, partners who believed they were similar liked each other a lot more than the couples who thought themselves to be dissimilar demonstrating we have a predisposition toward people we believe are just like us. We are most comfortable giving our business and friendship to those we feel share our values and beliefs in life. To that end, I offer six techniques to create sensations of similarity with everyone you wish.
along with making more profound rapport with customers, friends, and associates. Using the following techniques develops a deeper understanding and empathy with people of all races and backgrounds. It also opens doors that might otherwise be closed to you. 44. How to make them feel you're of the same class. Just like the finch flaps its wings faster than the gliding eagle, people of different backgrounds move differently. For example, Westerners used to the wide-open plains stand farther from each other. Easterners, systematically sardined into subways and crowded buses, stand closer. Asian Americans make modest movements. Italian Americans make massive ones. At tea time, the finishing school set genuflects and gracefully lowers derrieres onto the sofa. When the ladies reach for a cup, they hold the saucer in one hand and the cup in the other, pinky ever so slightly extended. Folks who never finished any manners school make a fanny dive in the middle of the sofa and clutch the cup with both hands. Is one right? Is the other wrong? No. However, top communicators know when doing business with a derriere-dipping pinky extender or a fanny-plopping two-fisted mug-grabber, they darn well should do the same. People feel comfortable around people who move just like they do. I have a friend who travels the country giving an outrageous seminar called How to Marry the Rich. Jeannie was once in a Las Vegas casino when a television reporter asked if she could tell the real rich from the great pretenders. Of course, Jeannie answered. All right, challenged the reporter. Who is the wealthiest man in this room? Convened at the next table were three men in tailored suits. Hayward of Mayfair, London, no doubt. Handmade shirts. Charvet of Place Vendôme in Paris, no doubt and sipping scotch, single malt Lefroig from the Scottish island of Isla, no doubt. The reporter naturally assumed Jeannie would choose one of these likely candidates. Instead, with the scrutiny of a hunting dog, Jeannie's eyes scanned the room. Like a trained basset hound, she instinctively pointed a long red fingernail at a fellow in torn jeans at a corner table. She murmured, "'He's very rich.' Flabbergasted, the reporter asked Jeannie, How can you tell? He moves like old money, she said. You see, Jeannie went on to explain, There's moving like old money, there's moving like new money, and there's moving like no money. Jeannie could tell the unlikely chap in the corner was obviously sitting on big assets, and all because of the way he moved. Technique number 44. Be a copy class. Watch people. Look at the way they move. Small movements, big movements, fast, slow, jerky, fluid, old, young, classy, trashy. Pretend the person you are talking to is your dance instructor. Is he a jazzy mover? Is she a balletic mover? Watch his or her body, then imitate the style of movement. That makes your conversation partner subliminally real comfy with you. They're buying you, too. If you're in sales, copy not only your customer's class, but the class of your product as well. I live in a section of New York City called Soho, which is a few blocks above the famous for being trashy Canal Street. 
often clutching my purse tightly and dodging the crowds on Canal Street, I'll pass a pickpocket turned salesman for the day. He furtively looks around and flashes a greasy handkerchief at me with a piece of jewelry on it. Psst, wanna buy a gold chain? His nervous thief's demeanor alone could get him arrested. Now, about sixty blocks uptown, you'll find the fashionable and very expensive Tiffany's Jewelry Store. Occasionally, clutching my fantasies of being able to afford something therein, I stroll through the huge gilt doors. Imagine one of the impeccably dressed sales professionals behind the beveled glass counters furtively looking around and saying to me, Psst, wanna buy a diamond? No sale. Match your personality to your product. Selling handmade suits? A little decorum, please. Selling jeans? A little cool, please. Selling sweatsuits? A little sporty, please. And so on for whatever you're selling. Remember, you are your customer's buying experience. Therefore, you are part of the product they're buying. 45. How to make them feel that you're like family. Have you ever been gabbing with a new acquaintance and, after a few moments, you've said to yourself, this person and I think alike, we're on the same wavelength? It's a fabulous feeling, almost like falling in love. Lovers call it chemistry. New friends talk of instant rapport, and business people say a meeting of minds. Yet it's the same magic, that sudden sense of warmth and closeness, that strange sensation of, wow, we were old friends at once. When we were children, making friends was easier. Most of the kids we met grew up in the same town, and so they were on our wavelength. Then the years went by. We grew older. We moved away. Our backgrounds, our experiences, our goals, our lifestyles became diverse. Thus, we fell off each other's wavelengths. Wouldn't it be great to have a magic surfboard to help you hop right back on everybody's wavelength whenever you wanted? Here it is, a linguistic device that gets you riding on high rapport with everyone you meet. If you stand on a mountain cliff and shout, hello -o, across the valley, your identical hello -o, thunders back at you. I call the technique echoing because, like the mountain, you echo your conversation partner's precise words. It all started across the ocean. In many European countries, you'll hear five, ten, or more languages within the language. For example, in Italy, the Sicilians from the south speak a dialect that seems like gobbledygook to northern Italians. In an Italian restaurant, I once overheard a diner discover his waiter was also from Udina, a town in northeastern Italy where they speak the Friulano dialect. The diner stood up and hugged the waiter like he was a long-lost brother. They started babbling in a tongue that left the other Italian waiter shrugging. In America, we have dialects, too. We just aren't conscious of them. In fact, we have thousands of different words depending on our region, our job, our interests, and our upbringing. Once, when traveling across the country, I tried to order a soda like a Coke or 7-Up in a highway diner. It took some explaining before the waitress understood I wanted what she called a pop. Perhaps because the English-speaking world is so large 
Americans have a wider choice of words for the same old stuff than any language I've encountered. Family members find themselves speaking alike. Friends use the same words, and associates in a company or members in a club talk alike. Everyone you meet will have his or her own language that subliminally distinguishes them from outsiders. The words are all English, but they vary from area to area, industry to industry, and even family to family. The linguistic device that says, We're on the same wavelength. When you want to give someone the subliminal feeling you're just alike, use their words, not yours. Suppose you are selling a car to a young mother who tells you she is concerned about safety because she has a young toddler. When explaining the safety features of the car, use her word. Don't use whatever word you call your kids. Don't even say child protection lock, which was in your sales manual. Tell your prospect, no toddler can open the window because of the driver's control device. Even call it a toddler protection lock. When mom hears toddler coming from your lips, she feels you are family, because that's how all her relatives refer to her little tyke. Suppose your prospect had said kid or infant. Fine. Echo any word she used. Well, almost any word. If she'd said my brat, you might want to pass on echoing this time. Echoing at parties. Let's say you were at a party. It's a huge bash with many different types of people. You are first chatting with a lawyer who tells you her profession is often maligned. When it comes your turn to speak, say profession too. If you say job, it puts a subconscious barrier between you. Next, you meet a construction worker who starts talking about his job. Now you're in trouble if you say, well, in my profession, he'd think you were being hoity-toity. After the lawyer and the construction worker, you talk to several freelancers, first a model, then a professional speaker, finally a pop musician. All three of these folks will use different words for their work. The model brags about her bookings. The professional speaker might say bookings, but he is more apt to boast of his speaking engagements. A pop musician might say, Yeah, man, I get a lot of gigs. It's tough to memorize what they all call their work. Just keep your ears open and echo their word after they say it. Echoing goes beyond job names. For example, if you are chatting with a boat owner and you call his boat an it, he labels you a real landlubber. He reverently refers to his beloved boat, of course, as a she. If you listen carefully, you hear language subtleties you never dreamed existed. Would you believe using the wrong synonym for a seemingly uncomplicated word like have labels you a know-nothing in somebody else's world? For example, cat lovers purr about having cats, but horse people would say owning horses. And fish folk don't own fish. They talk about keeping fish. Hey, no big deal. But if you use the wrong word, your conversation partner will assume correctly that you are a stranger in his or her hobbyland. The Peril of Not Echoing Sometimes you lose out by not echoing. My friend Phil and I were talking with several guests at a party. 
One woman proudly told the group about the wonderful new ski chalet she had just purchased. She was looking forward to inviting her friends up to her little chalet in the mountains. That's wonderful, said Phil, secretly hoping for an invitation. Where exactly is your cabin? Kerplunk! There went Phil's chances for an invitation to the ladies' chalet. I couldn't resist. After the conversation, I whispered to my friend, Phil, why did you insult that woman by calling her chalet a cabin? Phil scratched his head and said, What do you mean, insult her? Cabin is a beautiful word. My family has a cabin in Cape Cod, and I grew up loving the word, the associations, the joy of a cabin. In other words, the connotations of cabin. Well, fine, Phil. The word cabin may be beautiful to you, but obviously the skier preferred the word chalet. Professional Echoing In today's sales environment, customers expect salespeople to be problem solvers, not just vendors. They feel you don't grasp their industry's problems if you don't speak their language. I have a friend, Penny, who sells office furniture. People in publishing, advertising, broadcasting, and a few lawyers are among her clients. Penny's sales manual says, Office Furniture. However, she told me, if she used the word office with all of her clients, they'd assume she knew nothing about their respective industries. She told me her client, the purchasing officer in advertising, talks about his advertising agency. Penny's publishing client says publishing house. The lawyers talk about furniture for their firm, and her radio clients use the word station instead of office. Hey, Penny says, it's their salt mine. They can call it whatever the heck they please. And, she added, if I want to make the sale, I'd better call it the same thing. Echoing is politically correct insurance. Here's a quiz. You're talking with a pharmacist, and you ask her, How long have you worked at the drugstore? What's wrong with that question? Give up? It's the word drugstore. Pharmacists abhor the word because it conjures up many industry problems. They're used to hearing it from outsiders, but it's a tip-off that they are unaware of, or insensitive to, their professional problems. They prefer pharmacy. Recently, at a reception, I introduced one of my friends, Susan, as a daycare worker. Afterwards, Susan begged, Leal, please do not call me a daycare worker. We're child care workers. Whoops. Time and recent history quickly make certain terms archaic. A group's intense preference for one word is not arbitrary. Certain jobs, minorities, and special interest groups often have a history the public is not sensitive to. When that history has too much pain attached to it, people invent another word that doesn't have bitter connotations. I have a dear friend, Leslie, who is in a wheelchair. She says whenever anyone says the word handicapped, she cringes. Leslie says it makes her feel less than whole. We prefer you say person with a disability. She then gave a moving explanation. We people with disabilities are the same as every other able-bodied person. We say A.B., she added. A.B.s go through life with all the same baggage we do. We just carry one extra piece, a disability. 
It's simple. It's effective. To show respect and make people feel close to you, echo their words. It makes you a more sensitive communicator and keeps you out of trouble every time. Technique number 45. Echoing. Echoing is a simple linguistic technique that packs a powerful wallop. Listen to the speaker's arbitrary choice of nouns, verbs, prepositions, adjectives, and echo them back. Hearing their words come out of your mouth creates subliminal rapport. It makes them feel you share their values, their attitudes, their interests, their experiences. This is released for the sake of education. This is a brief key insight about all the concepts of the book. We provide free audiobooks, key insights, summaries, and brief study notes on the concepts of the books. So make sure to subscribe and become a part of our family. 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 Part of our family.